0: Please visit redemptionokc.com. Today might have to be the last time that I preach, and here's why I say that. If you were here back in April, uh, the last time I preached, you might remember that the passage that we looked at primarily had to do with not grumbling. Um, And I told you that on Saturday, before preaching on Sunday, our dog chewed up our rug, and that I had not listened to uh, Paul's words here, and instead I had grumbled very loudly at the dog, at the situation, I was upset, I was grumbling. So now, fast forward, here we are in May, it's a month later, and I'm preaching again, our Passage is uh, the song that we sung to open the service. It's dealing with anxiety. It's that famous passage that says, do not be anxious about anything. And last week, my family and I were um, out of town visiting my sister-in-law and her husband and their new baby. And so it was a pretty easy week to not be anxious. We were just hanging out, weren't, weren't really working, didn't have the everyday things that usually make us anxious. But then we drove home. And we got home on Friday around 6.30 and it's 90 degrees outside and we walk in the door and our air conditioner was blowing hot air. And so I did the two or three things that I know how to fix it. I turned it off and back on. Didn't work. I replaced the dirty air filters. Didn't work. I got out the hose and cleaned the coils off a little bit. Didn't work. And There's nothing like a major home appliance breaking down to make you anxious, Right. I started thinking how much is this going to cost to fix how long is it going to take to fix do we need to go find somewhere to sleep tonight because it's hot and i just had to laugh because rugs getting chewed up air conditioners breaking down those things are not normal occurrences at our house and yet the last two times i've preached those things have happened and directly challenged uh, my grumbling and then this time my anxiety so uh, i'm scared for what's going to happen next this this might just have to be it But the truth is, it didn't take our air conditioner going out for these verses on anxiety to be practical verses for me. Uh, Whether it's small things or big things, every single one of us deals with anxiety, and for most of us, we deal with it on a pretty much daily basis. So that's why this passage this morning is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and I think it's also one of the most relevant and practical passages in all of scripture for us. One of the most recent studies on anxiety in America showed that over 60% of Americans deal with serious anxiety on a regular basis, and over 20% of Americans have been clinically diagnosed by a doctor with an anxiety disorder. That means if you look around the room, more than half the people in the room have dealt with serious anxiety in the past year and one out of every five people in this room has gone to a doctor because their symptoms have been so severe. Those statistics also mean that the average American is eight times more likely to deal with serious anxiety than get cancer, and five times more likely to deal with serious anxiety than live in poverty. So dealing with anxiety is one of the biggest and most pervasive problems that we face as human beings. The good news is, God knows that. God knows what it's like to be human, and if we look at the Bible from beginning to end, the Bible is filled with words of comfort and encouragement to anxious people. And probably the most quoted, the most famous verse on anxiety in all of Scripture is right here in Philippians 4, as Paul is winding down this letter to this church. We called this sermon series Philippians Road to Joy because in many ways uh, this letter is a map for us to follow, a road map for us to follow in order to live out a life of joy in Christ. And now we've arrived at the final things that Paul has to say to this church and I don't think it's any surprise that Paul would emphasize two things as he wraps up the letter, peace and joy. I mean, that's what we all want most in life, right? Peace and joy. Of course, we want family and friends around us. We want a a meaningful job. We want to own a home, but those are just the surface level things that give us the deeper feeling of peace and joy. But one of the biggest barriers to peace and joy, maybe the biggest barrier even, is anxiety. And so, as Paul gives these final encouragements to the Philippians, he's giving them one final roadmap for living a life of peace and joy. And he's going to talk about several things, but at the heart of this passage, he talks about anxiety. And Paul's roadmap here isn't just positive thinking. It's not three quick fixes for anxiety. It's not just breathe deeply and exercise more. Uh, Paul knows that we're plagued with anxiety. He knows that we live in a broken world. And yet he also knows that God loves us that God doesn't want us to experience anxiety. God wants us to have peace and joy and that there are things that we can do as Christians to push against the anxiety in our lives and enter into to real peace and joy in Christ. So if your life is filled with anxiety and lacking peace and joy and whose isn't, then this passage is for you this morning. You're not gonna leave here and never feel anxious again. I I promise you that that will not happen. You are gonna feel anxious again. But Paul does give us some very practical things that we can do, that we can put into practice in our lives to push back anxiety and enter into God's peace. In these verses, I see at least six things that Paul describes that mark a life of peace and joy. We get to look in here and see what does a life of peace and joy look like, and then we can take those six things and put them into practice in our lives. So let's jump in. We'll be in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Uh, We sung most of these verses earlier to kick off the service. I'm not going to read the whole passage up front. I'll just read each verse as we get there. So Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So the first mark of a life of peace and joy that we see in this passage is rejoicing. If we wanna live a life of peace and joy, we need to be people who are regularly rejoicing and specifically, Paul says, rejoicing in who? Rejoicing in the Lord. In this letter, Paul's talked a lot about joy. He's talked about just the generic concept of joy But he's also commanded the philippians to rejoice to do joy to to rejoice and he makes that final command one time here he says rejoice and the main thing that i want us to take away from this verse is that you and i can choose whether or not to rejoice in god the fact that paul puts this into a command assumes that he believes that the philippians have a choice here they can choose to rejoice, or they can choose not to rejoice. And Paul's calling on them here to choose to rejoice in God, and he even adds that qualifier, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, let's back up for a minute and just remember the the wider context for this letter. Paul is in prison. He believes that he's close to death, and yet he's already told them, the Philippians, that he's rejoicing in the midst of those circumstances. Now the Philippians themselves are beginning to face persecution. They might even face the possibility of death because of their faith, and yet Paul tells them several times to rejoice in the Lord. And how can Paul say that? How can he say, I know that you might die because you're a Christian, but what you should do is rejoice? Is this just positive thinking is Paul just saying, look on the bright side, find the silver lining, just let go, let God, it'll all be okay. It's all going to work out. Don't worry about it. No, I don't think so. Paul has a good reason why he can say, rejoice in the Lord, even though you're facing death. And here's why. All throughout this letter, pretty much each week, I've been struck by the things that Paul tells us that he finds joy in. So just to recap in chapter 1 3 through 7 he says that he finds joy in fellow Christians who have believed the gospel and become partners with him in the gospel. In chapter 118 he finds joy in the fact that others are telling people about Jesus. In 1 19 through 26 he finds joy in his circumstances even though his circumstances are that he's in prison and facing death. In two seventeen, he tells us that he finds joy in the fact that he's given himself over for others. In three, one through eleven, he finds joy in knowing Christ and what Christ has done for him. In four, one, again, he says he finds joy in other followers of Jesus. And in four ten, he finds joy in their love and care and support for him. So what are the things that bring Paul joy? It's knowing Jesus. It's telling people about Jesus, it's seeing people trust in Jesus, it's being in relationship with followers of Jesus, it's serving followers of Jesus and being served by followers of Jesus, and it's knowing that one day he will spend eternity with Jesus and see him face to face. And because those right there, those things are the things that bring Paul joy, he can say something as crazy as rejoice in the Lord always, even when he's facing death. Because Paul's joy is anchored and rooted in things that cannot be taken away from him, even when his circumstances has changed. Paul still has his joy because he still has Jesus. He can still tell people about Jesus. People are still coming to faith in Jesus. He's still connected with other followers of Jesus. Even though he's in prison and facing death, none of the things that bring Paul joy have been taken away from him. The good news for us is that that kind of joy that Paul has is available to every follower of Jesus. If we want to have a life of joy, we have to hang our joy on things that don't change. But so often what we do is we hang our joy on the things of this world that do change. And so when things are good, we have joy. And then things are bad and we don't have joy. But Christian joy is such good news because it's an answer for the circumstances that change because it gives us a place to hang our joy that is outside of our ever-changing circumstances. So when a Christian loses their job, they can have joy because they haven't lost Jesus When a Christian moves to a new city, they can have joy because they know that there's a family of followers of Jesus waiting for them to welcome them. When a Christian gets a scary diagnosis, they can have joy because nothing can separate them from the love of God. But none of this happens naturally. Naturally, our joy is in the things of this world, and naturally, our joy goes down when our circumstances get difficult. And that's why Paul kicks off this section on peace and joy commanding the Philippians, rejoice, intentionally find joy in Christ. And this is the first mark of a life of peace and joy, and I think it probably is the most important mark. Because if we're primarily finding our joy in anything other than Jesus, it's going to be very hard to live a consistent life of peace and joy because everything else in this world is constantly changing. And so our joy is like a roller coaster. It's up and it's down. Circumstances are good, we have joy. Circumstances are bad, we lose our joy. But the good news of Christian joy is that Jesus doesn't change. And so if we hang our joy on him, our joy doesn't have to change. Of course, circumstances impact our joy. Of course, we're never going to have perfect joy all the time. But if Jesus is where our primary joy is, we can have joy even in difficult circumstances. So let's rejoice in the Lord, find our joy in him. That's the first mark of a life of peace and joy. The second is what Paul calls here being reasonable. Verse five, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What does that mean? Uh, This is a confusing statement. It's a confusing little verse because the word that the ESV translates as reasonable is a really difficult word to translate into English. We don't have a great one-to-one uh, Greek to English word here. And so sometimes it gets translated as reasonable or gentle. Um, but still, we don't really know exactly what that means. And the sense of this word is that it's someone who shows courtesy and respect to others and doesn't insist on their own way or their own rights. So it seems like what, what Paul's saying here when he's saying be reasonable is something along the lines of show courtesy and respect to other people and don't worry about always getting your own way. And I think that makes a lot of sense when we're talking about having a life of peace and joy, because it's really hard to have peace and joy in a world where everyone is insisting on their own way. Uh, in marriage, we could probably come up with a hundred examples of how we can insist on our own way, and we might get our way, but the result is a marriage without peace and joy. At work, we or other people can look out for ourselves, our career, our salary, and we might get the promotion, but it leads to a a workplace devoid of joy. Online, we can respond quickly and angrily to everyone who disagrees with us, but it's probably not going to change their mind. What it is definitely going to do is make us mad and rob us of our peace and our joy my youngest sister and i are very similar and one thing we have in common is that we both like to be right and i can think of several times where we were either arguing with one another or one of us was arguing with someone else in our family about who was right about something and we would never let it go we wanted to make sure at all costs that everyone knew that we were right and i can think back to those times and after the argument was over even if i was right I wish that it hadn't even happened because I felt bad. I was right, but insisting on my own way had led to a loss of peace and joy. And so it wasn't even worth it that I was right. And so often that happens in our world. But Paul gives us another way. He says, let courtesy and respect rule the day. Let courtesy and respect be the driving force in our lives. Don't always insist on your own way. And guess what? You're not going to get your way most of the time if you do that. You might not get the biggest salary that you could have. You might not get the promotion. You might have to let that thing that someone said online go. But you can keep your peace and your joy in the process. It's so hard to have a life of peace and joy when we insist on our own way in a world where everyone else is doing the same. And so Paul says if you want to have a life of peace and joy, you got to be different. You won't always get ahead. You won't always get away, but uh, get your way, but if you look at the people who are so often they're losing their peace and their joy in the process. So the second mark of a life of peace and joy is what Paul calls being reasonable, which we said is more like showing courtesy and respect to others and not insisting on our own way. Now we come to end of verse 5 and into 6 and 7, which is the, the most famous part of this passage. And Paul says, The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So before we get into the the two marks of a life of peace and joy in these passages, we've got that, that little phrase there that Paul inserts, the Lord is at hand. And it's not clear if Paul meant that to go with being reasonable or if he meant it to go with do not being anxious, but it really doesn't matter much. This whole passage is one cohesive unit, and whether Paul says it explicitly or just means it implicitly, this little verse is the driving factor behind much of what Paul says here. Paul's saying, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is alive. He's coming back. There's an eternity that is beyond this world that you have to look forward to. And if that wasn't true, then nothing Paul says in this section would make any sense. Paul wouldn't be able to tell them to rejoice even though they're facing death because this life is all there is. So why would you rejoice in death? But because that's true, Paul says you can have joy in any circumstance. Because that's true, you can not insist on your own way because getting ahead in this life is not the most important thing. And because that's true, because Jesus is coming back, you cannot be anxious. He gives us a reason for not being anxious. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. And so our, our third mark of a life of peace and joy is praying. And it's such a beautiful contrast Paul sets up in this verse. What should Christians be anxious about? Nothing. What should Christians pray about? Everything. It's basic Christian theology and practice for Paul. He, Because we believe in a God who is all-powerful and a God who loves us enough to die for us, we have no reason to be anxious about our circumstances. And because we believe that God is personal and not some distant cosmic being, we pray and we talk to God about the things that bother us. Of course, though, battling anxiety is not that simple. I know that, and you know that. But we do have to start here. We can't just gloss over what is actually true about God. We have to start with this foundation. And do you believe that God is sovereign, that God loves you, and that you can talk to God about the things you're anxious about? Because if you do believe that, then you have an incredibly powerful foundation for battling anxiety in your life. If we step back for just a moment and consider those three things— that God is sovereign, which means he's in control of every little thing that happens in the world, that God loves you, and that you can talk to God about your problems and worries, then we have nothing to fear, because nothing happens outside of God's control and God's purposes for us and our world, and God wants what's best for us, and God's in control, and so whatever happens is what's best for us and is grace from God. The problem is, though, we're human so we fail to believe that every single day. We, even if we believe it deep down, life gets hard. Our hearts and our minds lead us astray. And so even though we know we shouldn't be anxious, we are. And so what do we do about it? Paul gives us one thing to do. Pray. Paul says, let your requests be made known to God. Tell God what you want big things, small things. We ask God to help fix our circumstances, and we ask God to help calm our anxiety and our fears even in the midst of circumstances. We ask God to help us believe that he is who he says he is so we don't have to feel anxious. We can't fix our circumstances. We can't get rid of our anxiety. We can't make ourselves believe, but what we can do is talk to the one who can do those things. So Paul tells us, pray. Pray. There's a a need-to-breathe song called What I'm Here For that has this great little verse that I think sums up why prayer is the natural Christian response to anxiety. The verse says, if we knocked on heaven's door, I'd say, God, I'm only human. You'd say, that's God, that's what I'm here for. We are only human, but God knows that. God didn't create us to provide for ourselves. He is our provider. He didn't create us to make meaning and purpose in life. He gives us meaning and purpose. He didn't create us to control our circumstances. He controls our circumstances. And so the proper response to our anxiety when we feel like I'm only human, I can't deal with it, is to acknowledge that's true. I can't deal with it. But I can talk to the one who can And what's the result of taking our anxiety to God in prayer? It's that the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I love the imagery in this verse that Paul says God's peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Notice what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say when we pray about our anxieties, God's going to fix the situation or circumstance that's causing your anxiety. He might, but he might not. He doesn't even say God will remove all of your anxiety. Again, he might, but he might not. What he does promise, though, will happen for the Christian who brings his or her anxieties to God in prayer is that God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds. Paul's borrowing the language of the guard towers around the cities to say that when you pray about the things you worry about, God's peace sets up guard over your heart and your mind. That means that if you're a follower of Jesus, even when you're filled with anxiety, God is there protecting you. God is doing battle against the thoughts and feelings that fill your heart and mind. And we can hope in the fact that one day when Jesus returns that peace of God that's now guarding us will be the dominant emotion and feeling of our hearts and minds. When Jesus comes back, there'll be no more anxiety, no more worry, simply the peace of God, not just as a guard, but fully and finally filling our hearts and our minds. One more thing I want to point out from these few verses is that that little phrase in there, Paul says, praying with thanksgiving. So if praying is the third mark of a life of peace and joy, closely related to it is thanking. We should pray to God about everything. We should ask God to to fix our circumstances. We should ask God to remove our anxiety. But we should do all things, all, all those prayers, we should bring them before God with thanksgiving. Praying with thanksgiving means simply praying in a spirit of thankfulness to God for what he's done in the past and what he's going to do in the future no matter what happens. It's praying with the belief that God loves me and God cares for me, and therefore I can be thankful no matter what God decides to do. In good circumstances, I'm thankful. In bad circumstances, I'm thankful. When anxiety persists, I'm thankful. When anxiety is relieved, I'm thankful. The proper posture for Christians in prayer is one of thanksgiving towards God. And when we pray like this, it it helps lead us down the path of peace and joy. The opposite of this would be to be ungrateful or angry at God in prayer. And unfortunately, that can happen so easily when we're anxious because life is hard. We wonder, why is this happening to me? But if we lose our thankfulness to God for what he has done and what he is doing in our lives, then we also lose our lifeline in our anxiety. When life gets hard, God promises to guard us and to be with us, but if we get bitter and angry towards God, then we're not going to feel his presence in our lives. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be honest with God. It's okay to cry out to God and to be angry with God. We see that in the Psalms, but what we also see in the Psalms is that the psalmists don't stay there. They, They awaken their soul, as we sung earlier. They move themselves back to a place of thankfulness, towards God a life of peace and joy is one that's marked by thankfulness to God for what he's done in saving us and what he's doing in our circumstances as well let's keep going verse 8 another really uh, well known verse in this passage Paul says finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So the fifth mark here is that living a life of peace and joy involves thinking about the right things. In this section, Paul is telling them uh, that if they want to live a life of peace and joy, one of the things they need to do is think about things that are true, things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And it is so simple, but it makes so much sense because much of anxiety starts in our minds when we're thinking about things that have gone wrong or things that could go wrong. And so it makes sense that if we want to have a life of peace and joy, we should be thinking about these type of things instead. And we don't have time to walk through each category that Paul uh, mentions here, but I do just want to make two observations from this list. The first thing I want to point out is that Paul kicks off this list telling Christians who are in the middle of anxiety to think about what is true. And if you think about it, this is a pretty weird way to start this list. It's kind of shocking even because remember the context. Paul is encouraging these anxious people who might be facing death for their faith to not be anxious. And he's telling them to think about certain things in order to not be anxious But the first thing he tells them to think about is what's true. But what's true for them is that they're facing death. What's true for them is that Paul, their spiritual leader, who founded their church, is in prison and is probably about to die any day now. And so thinking about what's true seems like a pretty terrible strategy to get away from anxiety. What's true is why they have anxiety in the first place instead we we might have thought paul might say uh go down to the theater and watch a performance or go uh, cook dinner and forget about your anxiety for a while distract yourself so you don't have to think about it that's definitely the 21st century approach to anxiety isn't it we turn on the tv we go for a run we take a vacation we uh, brew a cup of coffee we clear our head and forget about all of our problems but instead paul says oh you're feeling anxious Why don't you just sit down and think about what's making you anxious for just a minute? Why does does that make any sense? Why would Paul tell them to sit down and think about what's true? Here's why. Because what's true for them doesn't just include what's true about their present circumstances. Whatever is true for you if you are a follower of Jesus is that you know the sovereign God of the universe who created you, who loves you, and who has called you into relationship with himself. What's true for you if you're a follower of Jesus is that you know the God who knows all things and controls all things and is by your side in all things. And so when you sit down as a Christian and think about those things that are causing your anxiety, the the mounting debt or the health concerns, you also get to remind yourself that God loves you, God is with you, and that God is working all things out for your good. When you sit down as a Christian and think about your health or about how short life is, you also get to remind yourself of the truth that god created us not just for this world but to live forever with him and that no matter what happens here we have an eternal future with him to look forward to most of the popular self-help books that deal with anxiety recommend exercise or vacations or spending time with friends and all of those things are good and important part of being healthy but what self-help books on anxiety can't do Is tell you to sit down and think about the deepest truths of your life in the universe Because they have methods the world has methods to distract us from anxiety and to minimize anxiety But at the end of the day if you don't believe in God and you sit down and think about the deepest truth of your life The only natural response is more anxiety Because without God we should all be anxious about our health because this life is all there is and it's really short Without God, we should all be anxious about money and kids and relationships and our jobs because, again, that's all there is to life, and life is messy and broken, and those things are going to get messy and broken as well. So without God, the best advice for anxious people is go for a run, watch a show, take a vacation. But with God, Paul can say, sit down and think about what's true. Yes, it's true. Money is tight, and your health isn't what it used to be. But it's also true that God is sovereign, that God loves you, and that your eternal future is secure in him. And those truths should bring us far deeper and more lasting comfort than watching TV or taking a vacation. One more point I want to make from this verse is that uh, most commentators say that this list of things that Paul lists here is a pretty odd list. And the reason they say that is because Paul seems to be taking some biblical categories like truth and justice and purity and mashing them together with uh, some non-biblical categories. It it was common for Plato and other pagan philosophers to list off things like this and include lovely and commendable and excellence. And so commentators are like, what's Paul doing here? He's just mashing together pagan values and Christian values. Why would he do that? And the conclusion that most commentators come to is that what Paul is saying here could be summed up just simply as think about good things. Think about good Christian things and think about good things in the world that aren't distinctly Christian as well. One of the major themes of this letter was how the Philippians can live out their faith in the midst of a pagan city, Philippi. And it seems like one, one, what Paul's saying here is that one thing you need to do to live out a life of peace and joy in a non-Christian city is to think about the good things in your city that aren't distinctly Christian. Again, it's so simple, but so practical. If there's something good happening in your city, think about it. If there's someone doing something good in your city, recognize that person. What so often happens for us as Christians when we're living in a world that is not perfect and is hostile to Christianity at times is that we see things in our city, we see things on the news, we see things on social media that we disagree with, and it makes us angry. And we see all the evil in the world, and it makes us sad. And we shouldn't ignore those things. That's not what Paul's saying here, but we also shouldn't focus on or dwell on those things either because we're only human and we don't have it in our power to change those things and dwelling on those things on the hard things on the bad things is only going to take away our peace and our joy so again paul's not saying don't think about the bad don't think about the hard that wouldn't be to think about what's true but what he is saying is don't fixate on the bad think about all the good in the world as well And that means that if we're going to do that, sometimes we've got to turn off the news, sometimes we've got to put down the phone, sometimes we just got to be silent with God and pray. Last verse, in verse 8, we saw Paul say that thinking about right things was a mark of a life of peace and joy, and now in verse 9 he says, doing the right things is a life of peace and joy. Verse 9, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul makes this summary statement. He says, everything you've learned from me, everything you've received from me, everything I've told you, everything you've seen me do, do it. He's basically saying, just live out the Christian life. Pray, read your Bible, gather with the church, sing, care for one another, practice hospitality, tell other people about Jesus. All the things we've seen Paul doing in this letter, all the things we see in the book of Acts, Paul's saying, if you want to live a life of peace and joy, go and do these things. Of course, Paul's not saying that if you do those things, God's going to reward you with peace. But what he is saying is that, the Christian life, how Jesus modeled it for us, how Paul modeled it for us, and how Christians have lived it for 2,000 years, is a life that sets us up for peace and joy. It involves things like prayer, which we've already seen is a key component to peace. It involves Christian community who can be there for you during difficult times. It involves singing and rejoicing together in God. It, it involves mission, which gives us life and meaning and purpose. And all of these things put together help push back on anxiety and help move us into a place of peace and joy. Some of these things in this section are really simple, but they're also really important. Paul's saying if you want to live a life of peace and joy, make sure you're practicing the rhythms of the Christian life because the rhythms of the Christian life push us towards peace and joy, and neglecting those rhythms push us towards anxiety and worry. And then Paul ends this section with this incredible promise. He says, and the peace of God will be with you. So if you remember back in verses 6 and 7, Paul said, don't be anxious, pray, and then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And now Paul brings it full circle. He wraps up this section by saying, not only will the peace of God be with you, but the God of peace will be with you. And here's why I think this verse right here is the key to this entire passage. Every single human being in the world who's ever lived wants the peace of God. And most people aren't going to call it that. They're just going to call it peace, but they want the type of peace that Paul's talking about here. The peace that surpasses understanding, the peace that never goes away, that even when our circumstances are bad. That's what every single person wants in the world And it's also true that none of us actually has it perfectly, and so we all go looking for it in various places. We look for the peace of God in movies or Netflix. We look for it in nice homes or nice cars. We look for it in marriage or by having kids. We look for it in jobs that give us purpose and meaning. We look for it in good meals or good wine or in yoga or deep breathing or healthy eating or vacations or... All of these different things, we look for the peace of God everywhere because one of our greatest desires is to have it, and none of us actually has it. And none of those things I just mentioned are bad things. Those can all be good gifts given to us by a good God that we enjoy in His grace. But the problem is, if we're looking to those things for the peace of God, we're not going to find it. Because the peace that those things give is not perfect. It's temporary. It's incomplete. They help for a while, but the peace that they provide never lasts. And the reason that's true is because those things are promising us the peace of God, but they're missing the God of peace. And without the God of peace, we will never have the peace of God. The only way to have peace in this life that isn't ripped away when things go wrong is if that peace is anchored somewhere outside of ourselves and outside of our circumstances. But all of the ways that the world deals with anxiety is about changing ourselves and changing our circumstances, but they don't work. So we we clear our mind by watching a show or by exercising, but the show ends, the run ends, and the anxiety floods back in. We change our surroundings with a new house or a vacation, but as soon as the vacation ends or the house doesn't feel new, the anxiety floods back in. We eat healthier and take care of our body, but we still have to face the reality that it doesn't matter how healthy you eat, you're still going to die just like everyone else. So... We can change ourselves, we can change our surroundings, we can change our circumstances, we can do that as much as we want, but we're never going to find the perfect remedy for anxiety because it's not out there in the world or inside of ourselves. Peace that surpasses understanding doesn't exist in the world. It doesn't exist within ourselves. We've got to go outside of our world, outside of ourselves, outside of our circumstances to something or someone that exists outside of us in this world if we want peace. And we know that that is the God of peace. The God of peace who has perfect peace that can look down at this broken, messed up world and all of it, we only see a little bit of it. He sees all of it. And yet he still has peace. And so if we know this God of peace, if you know the God of peace, you have the joy and the privilege of not having to freak out and be anxious about every little thing. Our world, I don't have to tell you, I don't think, is freaking out and anxious about every little thing. And they're doing so because they have no foundation for peace. But we do. We don't have to freak out when things are scary or hard in our lives or in the world around us Because we know the one who is totally in control and we can look at him and he's not freaking out So we can have joy and peace not because we can muster it but because we know the god of peace So real quick, how can we apply this text to our lives? The first question would be do you know the god of peace? Have you acknowledged that you can't live your life on your own and have you trusted in Jesus as the king of your life? If not, you will never know lasting peace in your life. You'll know it in bits and pieces, but without the God of peace, you cannot know the peace of God. And so if you don't know the God of peace, your first step is to trust him. For those of us who do know the God of peace, we've got to ask ourselves, where are we looking for Peace. Because even though we know the God of peace, even though we're following Jesus, it's still so easy for us to look at all of the places the world looks for our peace. Again, those things are good gifts meant for us to be enjoyed, but they can't give us peace. Only God can do that. And then lastly, what are one or two marks of a life of peace and joy, those things that we looked at that you could work on cultivating in your life this week? Maybe it's rejoicing in the Lord finding your joy in him. Maybe it's being reasonable and not insisting on your own way. Maybe it's praying about the things that you're anxious about, knowing that God cares for you. Maybe it's thanking God for what he's done in your life and is doing in your life. Maybe it's thinking about things that will lead you to peace. Or maybe it's practicing the rhythms of the Christian life, like prayer, Bible reading, and gathering with other Christians. These are the things that Paul gives us as a roadmap to a life of peace. So let's, let's know the God of peace. Let's trust the God of peace. Let's put these things into practice in our lives in order that we might live lives of peace and joy. Let me pray for us. Father, we so badly want peace and we just most of the time feel anxious and fail to trust you. And Lord, we can't muster peace on our own. We We just need you to come and to give us peace. We need you to help us, trust that you love us, trust that you are who you say you are, that you are working all things out for our good. And so, Father, I just pray for every person in this room, you would help us to trust you and to know the peace that only you can give. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.